0: Hello, hello! You are listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR Radio. I'm your host, Christina Harback, and I'm joining you from Mississauga, Wascaghin, here on Treaty Six Territory. Shout for Libraries looks at all things library and information studies related. On today's episode, we have part two of Jeremy Wilson's interview with Michelle de all about prison libraries and what it's like to be a librarian in the prison system. We'll also share part one of Dan Hackborn's interview with Tamara Van Buert, who talks about a restorative justice project ongoing at the Edmonton Public Library. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy.
1: And how are these libraries funded?
2: For the most part funded now by the Correctional Service of Canada, but how it works is like the Correctional Service of Canada gives the education department a budget and then the education department takes a chunk out of their budget for the library. So it's not really a separate line item, right? And so you have to, I guess, fight with the teachers to get your budget. And it's not really fighting. Like where I was working, um, we actually, I had a great relationship with the, with the teachers where you know I got my budget and I was able to use most of my budget just to purchase new books because they let me use their office supplies. So like, you know, I could go in there and take pens and printer paper and that sort of stuff. Um, And then I could use most of my budget for books. I don't know if it's the same at every prison because obviously every single prison's library budget is gonna be different based off of that fact alone.
1: Are there any charities or organizations that help, help out with the prison libraries? What's your experience with like uh, the ones that you were talking about before?
2: Yeah, so there actually are a lot of organizations that do help. So like in the Edmonton area, at least there's the Prison Libraries Project. And for the most part, what they're doing is programming and they're providing uh, donated materials, right? And like normally the prison would have some sort of ideally, anyways, I shouldn't say normally, ideally, they'll have some sort of partnership with their local public library where they can, you know, get at least the discards from the local public library to sort of supplement their collection, which again is not ideal, right? You don't, you know, if the public library is discarding it, that means it's irrelevant in the public library. And, you know, we're, in prison we're supposed to be providing a library service that is you know the same or at least on par with public library services so that's it's not an ideal collections method but there are tons of charity organizations that are helping to get donated books into those libraries um where I'm living now so I am living in Nova Scotia there's Books Beyond Bars and Books Beyond Bars does everything. So they have like a library service where they come in and just like do shelving and do like stuff like that in the local prisons in like Halifax area. Um, and they also get donations if they notice that there's a need for specific books or there's they've gotten lots of requests for specific books, they will put out a call and see if they can get donations for those specific things, which I think is actually a great way to do that, right? Is like actually ask people what they need instead of just donating the discards. But I mean, I'm not saying that discards don't help, they do. But you know, it'd be nice to get the stuff that these guys actually want to read. But yeah, there are groups like that. There are universities that have I guess, university courses that are entirely paper based, which is the only way to do it in prison. So there's really only, I think, a few universities in Canada that do that. I know Thompson Rivers University, I think, is one of them that has a completely paper based program that they provide to people in prison. And so the librarians there will help um, by sending in photocopied materials, um, reading materials for those courses for people in prison, which also helps, right? Like it'd be nice if everything was open access and we could get all those photocopied materials free of charge, which is rare, right? That's the other thing is to get printing, you have to pay for it. Um, There's things like the John Howard Society and Elizabeth Rice Society, they're providing mostly programs Um, on the outside. So for people returning to society, they have support groups, they provide programming in halfway houses and things like that. So I mean, there, there really are lots of helpers. I'm just not entirely sure how much these helpers are communicating with each other to make, you know, to make things better. And I get too that there's a lot of like jurisdictional stuff, I guess, or what would you call it, like turf wars maybe between like, you know, these charity organizations that are all trying to do the same thing and it's because they're getting grant funding, right? So they have to sort of do things a specific way, but I wish, I wish it wasn't like that. I wish we could all like help each other to make these places better.
1: How much contact would you say that you've had with the inmates? Like, do you have your regulars?
2: <laughs> yes, for the most part, yes. So, like, again, I worked in maximum security. So, for the most part, unless I was actually doing a program, my contact was always through a door. Like, there was always a barrier between me and the person I was talking to. Um, and then in programs, obviously, the barriers were removed. But yes, I did have regulars. Um, I had folks who like I knew what they were reading. I knew exactly what kind of books they would like. So you know it was that sort of stuff and you get you build a rapport with these people too, right like and you know when you're seeing it somebody every every other day and they're telling you like you know sometimes, they would just tell you, you'd say, hey, how's it going? And all of a sudden you get somebody's like life story, right? Or like the story of why they're in prison. Or sometimes it would happen in book club, right? Where we'd be talking about a book and suddenly someone's telling you this like really emotional story about their past. And a lot of my job was just to create space for that right just to listen and not react because there's a lot of folks in prison who just needed to say that to somebody who's going to listen to them and not react and I think that's a huge part of library work in general if you're working in a public library if you're working on a reference desk like any type of circulation and you're dealing with your library patrons all the time, you're going to ask somebody how they are, and they're going to tell you how they are, (laughs) right, and a part of our job is, you know, to just hold space for that, and librarianship is a service industry, so I think that just kind of comes with the territory, and, you know, I wish we would talk about it more in library school, because I don't think we ever really talked about, like, you know, what do you do when, like, I'm laughing right now because I'm just thinking of all these crazy situations that I had in prison. like, what do you do when one of your library patrons gets stabbed, right? Or what do you do when one of them dies, which is a thing that happens. and, like, that's a person that you built a rapport with, so you got to know. What do you do when somebody is in a crisis, very clearly, and, like, you can't help them because... You're just a librarian, right? Like I'm not a social worker. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm just a librarian. It gets, it was interesting. Like, I feel like I've rambled a little bit on this question, but, you know, I did have regulars. I had people I really enjoyed talking to. And to say that is also dangerous, right? Because there are people who work in person who would hear that and they would label me as a con lover, and then it makes my job really dangerous.
1: How would you say, uh, did the inmates ever talk about what they thought about uh, the library? The library?
2: They did, they did. Um, a lot of, I mean, a lot of the people in prison were just really grateful that the library was functional and that they had somebody that they could ask for books from, right? That they could say, hey, like, do you have anything about this? Can you get these books in, right? Like, you know, they there's a lot of times where folks would just say, thank you. Like, thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming in and, you know, doing programs even. And they'd ask like, can we ever, will we ever be able to browse in the stacks? And I'd obviously have to say, no, I'm sorry right? Or will we ever, you know, will you ever be able to get volunteers into your programs? Because I was running them by myself. Because to be a volunteer in prison, you have to go through an orientation. And every time they would schedule the orientation, they'd cancel it. So I'd have to run all these programs by myself, which is like, frustrating too, right? But, you know, that was a lot of the comments were just things like that, like, thank you for running this service. Or, you know, there were those comments that were like, this other library was way different and they had way better stuff. And like, it's crazy that we can't browse the stacks. And I'd be like, yes, it is crazy. Or, you know, there were questions about like, can I have my own books? Can I order my own books for myself? And technically, yes it is well within your right as a person in prison to order your own books for yourself. If you order from like directly from the bookstore and it comes in that box like untampered with, you should be able to have your books for yourself. And the reality was that like the correctional officers would always be like, no, they can't have these books because like you know, it's a fire hazard or if they order these books, it'll make things dangerous for us because like one time someone sent a book that had fentanyl in it, which really did happen and it does happen, right? And that's a risk to working in the library. Like I didn't know if I was going to one day get fentanyl in the library. And if I did, I'd probably die because I worked alone in a very isolated part of the prison where nobody can see me. (laughs) So, like, I shouldn't laugh, but I'm laughing because what else? You know, if I wasn't laughing, I'd cry.
1: You were talking a bit earlier about how uh, there are very few schools in, in Canada that still offer paper based library courses. When you went to the university, I'm guessing they didn't offer any of those courses either. So, what was your like, did you get training in order to work within that sort system?
2: I did not. I never got training to do that sort of thing or provide any sort of like university course to people in prison or any of that stuff. Um, I know that there were some folks in like the same prison circles that I was in that did teach university level courses, like four credit courses to folks in prison. And they did it at the Edmonton institution. So like it did exist. It just, a lot of these, and this is what I mean when I say like, I wish we would all help each other. A lot of these programs are operating separately and independently from each other. And so we're not always communicating and it might've made things easier if like, I could say, hey, what are you reading for your class that you're teaching and would you be able to donate this class book for the library so if anybody else is interested they can also read that thing right like it would have been nice to do that and you know maybe that's a failure on my part too because I could have easily reached out and asked for that as well and the problem is like I was so bogged down with the everything else of it, that it made it hard to make those connections with people. And I think too, when you're in the prison culture, like when you're actually working there, you get like, I mean, you get institutionalized really, right? Like you form this mistrust of people outside. Like, you know, folks would call and be like, I wanna donate books to the library and, you know, I would have to be like, who are you? And I have to like make sure I wrote down all this information, like where their name, their whole name and their contact info and et cetera. And part of that was just so that I could email them like the rules for donating materials to prison. But the other part of it was so that I could double check and make sure that this is a real person and they're not like going to mess up my library services basically because if one thing bad happens then you don't get a library anymore right and of course this is one of the main arguments that like a lot of prison administrators and a lot of correctional officers have against the library is that like it's it's dangerous right like the books become weaponized. And you know, they become weaponized in more ways than one, I'm sure, that like, having folks in prison who educate themselves and, and know their rights is arguably just as dangerous to the institution as having folks in prison who like, hide a shank in the spine of their book.
1: And what kind of books are banned?
2: in the library Uh, so many if there are any there's so many there's so many banned books in prison libraries so anything that like correctional staff would consider is like I guess teaching how to be a more effective psychopath I should laugh again but so that stuff that's like Machiavelli's the prince um the 48 laws of power, Robert Greene, the Satanist Bible, like things like that, that to me is really arbitrary and ridiculous to ban. And, you know, it's funny too, because like there's an actual censorship policy. It's one of the commissioner's directives. And I forget which one I think commissioner's directive 720 maybe, but you know, you'll have to (laughs) do your own research on that one. They are openly accessible on the internet. Just Google commissioners directives um, or use DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine you want. But um, this directive exists that says these specific materials. So anything that um, contains hate speech or would otherwise create a quote-unquote hostile work environment is banned anything that's pornographic in nature or contains like explicitly sexual scenes is technically supposed to be banned but then like people in prison can subscribe to pornographic magazines for example and they have tv they have hbo they have video games so like you know it's What am I going to do? Throw away all the romance novels, (laughs) like it just in case. Um, So these rules are really arbitrary. And then there's obviously the one that's like nothing that says how to make weapons or would cause like a security threat. Um, So nothing about like escaping from prison or, you know, things like that. A lot of that was banned then in different institutions, there are these like arbitrary blanket bans on certain materials. So there'll be some places will have a ban on all true crime, right? Some places, you know, the Edmonton Institution for Women had to have these big conversations about if they were going to ban Fifty Shades of Grey because it's like sexually (laughs) explicit. and in the end, they did not. So Edmonton Institution for Women can in fact have 50 Shades of Grey. And when I left the Edmonton Institution for Men, we did not have it, though it was asked for. So if you have a copy and anyone wants to donate it, I don't know if it will actually make it past the correctional officers who check all the donated stuff, but you know, it might and someone might want to read it. But things like that, obviously, do get banned. And then there's things like, you know, there's a lot of um, prison made these, for example. So there's like Out of Bounds magazine. Um, oh, I forget. There's a list of these somewhere also on the internet that you can find, but they're all made by people in prison. Um, some of them with the help of their prison library. So that's another area where the prison library helps. And at the Edmonton institution, the chiefs of education, the regional chiefs of education for um, the Prairie Provinces were in talks about if they were gonna ban, um, I think it was Out of Bounds Magazine or it might've been one of the other ones. And it was because that particular one was criticizing uh, the Correctional Service of Canada's response to COVID 19, but they were trying to play it off like it was, you know, encouraging uh, violence or some, something of that nature. And that was one of the times where I stepped in and said, basically, I dissent, I would oppose this ban because these are magazines that are made. Five people in prison, four people in prison. It's giving them a voice. It's giving them a method to communicate with each other across Canada, and not just in their respective institutions, but all across Canada. And we shouldn't ban this material. I've read through this and I made it um, my mission to read through everything that was supposed to be banned as well. So I could try and like fight that later. And yeah, I have to say I read through this and I don't see anything that explicitly breaks the rules here. Like nothing that goes against this policy that is in place.
1: Sorry, I'm just running out of questions. Uh, <laughs> um, so what can non what can non-prison librarians do, so they can improve upon this situation, or sh- sh- should I say, what can prison, uh, what can li- librarians do just in general to improve upon this situation?
2: It's, I mean, it's hard, right? It's really hard, and you know, it's complicated too because I think. There's a lot of us that really do get into librarianship because we want to help people. And we think that this is the way that we're going to help all these people. We're going to help them find the information that they need or, you know, help them learn how to use technology or whatever it is. And the reality of prison and the prison library is that you can't. Like, yes, it's supposed to be this this oasis of equality and respect. And in a lot of ways, it actually is like the one normal place in the whole institution. And I, I would put normal in quotes as well because like, what is normal in prison? Um, and it's, it's impossible, right? Like if you set that standard for yourself, it is impossible. And, you know, I think this is where that, very famous Angela Davis quote comes into play where she says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, so I'm sorry if I get the quote wrong, but she says, You have to act like it's possible to radically change the world, and you have to do it all the time. And I think we are at a point now with COVID and, you know, of possibly a world war. And all this other stuff that we are in a place where you know we're talking about vocational awe and we're talking about our own mental health when we're doing these jobs that we are ne- we were not equipped to be doing, like handing out rapid tests in a public library, for example, and like doing stuff that a healthcare worker should be doing and answering questions like that too. I think we're at a point now where we need to talk about these prisons and talk about the situation and I know that it's really petty too like well it's not really petty it sounds really petty or it sounds outlandish maybe is the better word to use here where they say you know like all we have all these bigger problems like we have to put our funding into the COVID-19 relief. We have to put our funding into national defense now because we have to protect against Russia. <laughs> like, we can't be giving this money to the libraries. We can't be giving this money away to these, you know, I guess, obsolete, which is a lot of people's thoughts about the library nowadays, <laughs> these obsolete institutions. And this is a problem, right? And we're in a place right now where we should be advocating for ourselves and we should be advocating really hard and when it comes to prison i don't think that there is any amount of reform whether that be in library services or in the prison in general that is going to fix the problems that prison has right like it's not going to fix for example the Fact that prisons play a role in ongoing colonialism. Like very clearly when you look at the racial disparities and the people that are in prison, they very clearly play a role in colonialism, right? Like, I don't think that there's any reform that's gonna help that. And there has never been a reform that made prisons better or that made them more humanizing or that really reduced recidivism in any way. So, I think what we need to start doing is thinking about what radical change looks like, right? And, you know, yes, the library service needs to be better, but like everything needs to be better. And arguably, everything needs to be redone. And it's not easy. And I don't know all the answers for that. Um, and I think it will require just a radical reimagining and radical defunding of of prisons, of law enforcement, of all these institutions, and then a radical redistribution of that funding into the programs that stop people from going to prison in the first place. And like, we see it in the public library too, like this would actually help us as public librarians too, because we're seeing the problems that come about when you defund or underfund all these social programs and then you use the library as the panacea for the lack of funding everywhere else. So, you know, now's the time to really think about radical change and what that looks like. And it's gonna require some creativity and it's also gonna require some, you know, tangible calls for action that we can make right now.
0: I think
1: I could ask a million more questions, Michelle, but I think it looks like we're running out of time. So my final question is, what would you advise librarians and library students who are interested in working and volunteering in prison libraries? What should they know before getting into into it?
2: (laughs) Well, it's hard and it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, and it will affect you whether you think that you can Cope or not, it's going to affect you. The fact that I still have dreams about prison is proof enough to me that it's going to affect you one way or the other. And there's not really, right now, there's no full time work in a prison library. So your best bet would actually be volunteering. But to do that, you're going to need money, you're going to need a car, you're going to need you know, friends probably who can help you. So that's these volunteer groups, right? Otherwise you're looking at working part-time in a library tech position um, because that's really the only positions they offer. They do it on purpose so that they don't have to pay you that much. Um, And I'm laughing again because uh, as always, if I didn't laugh, I would cry. So if you take anything from this, maybe it's to just go into it with a sense of humor.
1: Thank you very much for your time.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: I just had one uh, question just sort of added into the pre-interview sure. uh, part. Just to clarify, um, what are you working in right now?
2: So right now I am a public librarian in a library in rural Nova Scotia. So I left prison my prison life (laughs) to be a public librarian for a while um and yeah i'm mostly just doing the same to be honest it's almost exactly the same as prison Um, i'm doing a lot of reference work i'm helping folks with technology i'm doing a lot of community outreach and programming and you know i've been doing a lot of writing so I might be jumping the gun a little bit by telling you this, but I did write an article about prison library policies, which hopefully soon will be published in the Journal of Radical Librarianship. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, I don't know what is going to happen because these things take forever and ever. So yeah, that's that's pretty much my life right now.
1: Thank you very much for your time. Well,
2: thank you. And, you know, I'm happy to be here. I could probably talk about this forever, too. So it's not just you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. So uh, thanks for this. Well,
2: thank you. And I guess I will see you around.
1: (laughs) So long. Have a good one.
3: Welcome to one of our many book reviews here at Show for Libraries. My name is Maya. Today we are going to be talking about a book that I found while browsing at Glass Bookshop here in Edmonton. Casual shout out to one of my favorite bookstores. You should go check them out if you're ever in the downtown area. If buying books isn't for you, luckily this book is also available at EPL and they've got two copies the last time I checked. The book is titled Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada and I thought it was an appropriate choice and kept in line with our general theme as of late. This book was published in April 2022 and edited by Shiri Pasternak, Kevin Walby, and Abby Stadnik. Before I begin this review, I just wanted to make a disclaimer and take a moment to let any of our listeners know that you may find this content upsetting as some of it, although necessary and very important to discuss, can be difficult to hear. If at any point you feel triggered by any part of this review, please feel free to turn off the radio and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. And with that, we'll dive right in. The book is an edited collection of essays written by a handful of activists and scholars, rooted in experience and solidarity with groups and individuals fighting for the abolition of police forces here in Canada. They are all trying to dispel myths about Canadian exceptionalism and benevolence in policing, the not us, not here mentality, and the idea that reform is a solution to police violence. A central argument of the book is that the typically proposed police reform solution is unrealistic, counterintuitive, and altogether serves to further entrench the system that causes harm in the first place. It's like putting a Band-Aid on something instead of acknowledging the wound underneath. The authors of this book also argue that reforms have not worked and continue to be initiatives that are overly funded. They say that those same funds should be allocated to people and programs that are better equipped to deal with situations where police often fail, like wellness checks and mental health crises. There are 19 chapters in total in this book, each a different piece by a different author, all of which I think are extremely valuable, but I'll pick two to talk about for the sake of time. How do you fit such big ideas into a five-minute review? One chapter that really caught my attention was Chapter 2, A History of Toronto Activism Against Anti-Blackness, written by Ruth Norty. They do a thorough and thoughtful job of outlining the major moments and movements that have occurred in Toronto where folks have actively resisted anti-Black racism in the Toronto police force. They outline significant events from the 1970s up to the present day, ending with the decision of the Toronto City Council in 2020 to vote against defunding the police, and unsurprisingly, they proposed reform programs instead. The writing of this chapter is straightforward, passionate, and frustrated. You can feel the frustration and the devastation seeping out of every word, and I felt deeply moved. The chapter felt too short for everything there is to say about this subject. The other chapter I wanted to mention is chapter 15, No Police at Overdoses. The chapter is the only one done in a graphic novel style, and I always appreciate when books and authors use different mediums to communicate messages and ideas. The chapter was done by Nicole Marie Burton and Hugh D.A. Goldring, and discusses the overdose crisis over the past few years, and how police officers often immediately treat those experiencing or involved in an overdose, like criminals, and how this discourages people from calling for help. It also discourages those who are at a higher risk of police violence, such as sex workers, racialized people, or street-involved folks, because it can be dangerous for them to be known to police. The author and illustrator are able to at least give a glance into the intense emotion of that kind of situation, as it's obvious no one could fully understand the gravity of an overdose situation unless they're in it. The book is trying to reach across divides by trying to communicate with people in different ways, not only through scholarly essays. The book is trying to be accessible to a wide range of folks because this is an issue that involves everyone. My overall thoughts on the book are this, read it. You know, if you want to, but seriously, read it. The book takes a scholarly approach to police violence in Canada while still keeping it accessible and easily readable. I think there are instances where specific sentences are repeated often throughout the book and there is a lot of overlap between chapters, but it just really drives the point home. It's uncomfortable to read the names of people who have been killed over and over again, But I don't think as readers we're supposed to be comfortable reading this book. I don't think you're supposed to walk away from this book unchanged and without some kind of fire burning in the pit of your stomach at the injustice of it all. The repetition just demonstrates the interconnectedness of various mechanisms within our settler police state that aim to control and colonize. I wish the book had given more examples of what programs and funding need to exist instead of a police force, but I can also understand that you can't fit all of that into one book. I would highly recommend this book to anyone who wants to know more about the history of brutal policing in Canada, what folks have done to fight for abolition, and how abolition is a practice and a means by which a more just world can be achieved.
4: Today, I am sitting here with Tamara Van Biert in her office in the EPL Shelley Milner Children's Library. Tamara, could you give us a brief intro about your role?
5: Sure. Sure. So I manage the day-to-day operations of the Children's Library and the Edmonton Public Library Literacy Vans. What that looks like mostly is responding to a lot of emails and talking to a lot of people.
4: Today we're talking to you about restorative justice. Can you give a brief description of restorative justice and what you understand this approach to be in contrast to?
5: Restorative justice is a way of responding to wrongdoing wherever it comes up, whether uh, within the justice system or in day-to-day life. And in contrast to retributive justice, or even within parenting, for example, uh, punishment-related things, restorative justice looks at a lot of different factors, who is involved, so it expands the stakeholders in conversations about wrongdoing to involve all the people that were harmed and were involved, and the people who care for them. So when you think about a wrongdoing that might happen... think about the, um, of course, the person who caused the harm, but also the people who were harmed and their communities, their families, lots of different webs of, of harm can happen. And restorative justice takes the time to ask questions and involve all of the stakeholders in the process to find a way to make things right.
4: So given that, what was the scope of the EPL pilot in implementing this lens, restorative justice within the institution?
5: So we started back in 2018 as a way to respond to increased incidents happening with youth across the library systems, but specifically in four of our branches. So we started in the Castle Downs branch where I was managing at the time, where we were able to focus in on youth that were in our space, uh, specifically youth that were getting asked to leave more than once a week, usually once a day, for causing harm within the library. So it's a range of harm from very small-scale things to larger-scale things. And so we thought about different ways we learned, started to learn about different ways we might be able to respond to that harm. Um, specifically, one of the first things we learned was that restorative justice only works within the context of a, of a fuller understanding of restorative practice. Um, so we really we've shifted the focus to call it now our restorative practice pilot, And that involves all of the things you can do in advance to build good relationships and to have um, a community of people who understand people as humans um, with complex backgrounds and brain development and things that might be going on in their past or their day that help contribute to their actions. So when you start with relationships, you can get um, a lot further in responding to wrongdoing that's happening in the space. And that's where we've ended up needing to focus a lot of our work.
4: Can you give us a general sense of the training that staff were given in order to participate in the pilot?
5: Because the scope of the pilot was figuring out what restorative practice might look like in our library setting in our city. A lot of the training started off just by having open conversations. So we started off with support from the neighborhood empowerment team here in Edmonton. They, they work as a combination of a number of different nonprofit organizations to work on crime prevention. And we had somebody who had quite a bit of background in restorative justice who was helping us through the process. So we started with um, conversations about what restorative justice was, introduction training through various organizations in the city um, for the part of the leadership teams. And then through this contact at neighborhood empowerment team, we were given some basic resources where we started to learn and then at the beginning of the pilot it was about finding out what worked and then deciding how this how this would work in the context of EPL so we found out that we could make a really solid continuum of, of restorative practices from our organization. So starting off with just making sure we say hello and try to get to know the regular pe- customers' names, moving all the way to how we might respond to significant wrongdoing or harm done in the library. The training provided has been built up over the course of the pilot. So as of uh, today, with this interview happening, we have an online course that people can take that's about 90 minutes. And we have support from uh Caroline Gosling, who's the chair of the Alberta Restorative Justice Association, uh, so we've we've built up the training over time, but it is something we had to develop as part of this pilot.
4: How have those library staff interacted with the implementation of the pilot? So,
5: depending on the situation, there might be there's a few examples. So, we've had customers who who went from getting kicked out almost every day at the Castle Downs Library who were able to participate in a conversation about a specific incident, saying what. What harm was caused and actually having a staff member there talking about what the harm was and having the the child be able to answer those questions as well with all parental consent involved and that that child went from needing to go every day and causing quite a bit of disruption in the space to being a part of the culture of the library to saying hello every time he came in walking when his friends were running coming to us for support when he needed it as well it really um changed the way the interactions with staff happened so that can happen um, depending on the staff member you might have the only the only thing you might do is say hello to people and try to remember their names that's the first step Um, hi I'm Tamara it's lovely to have you here what's your name hey you told me your name last week I forget it can you tell me again and just making an effort um, maybe it involves sitting down playing a game of cards if it's a quiet night or asking about how school's going or if they're not going to school asking how their video game is going, whatever it is, doing something to build a bit of a relationship. It might also mean responding in the moment to a small-scale harm. The way that we do that is instead of saying, you know, the policy is be quiet or shushing from across the room, walking up and saying, oh, you know, I noticed that some people who are studying are looking over at you quite a bit. Um, I've noticed that I think they want it to be a bit quieter in here. Because you know, I don't know what they're doing, but maybe they have a big test tomorrow or there might be some reason. So kinda of trying not just to say what the policy is, but to say what the harm is. So who's being harmed by these actions? Um, oh, when you swear in the children's library, it makes it feel like it's not really a safe place for kids for these parents. Like I've noticed that you swore a couple times and those parents actually moved away with their kids. And we want this to be a space where everybody feels safe and welcome. A couple little examples like that. So that's kind of in the moment rather than just saying you need to be quiet or get out expanding that harm, the talk of what the harm is and why it matters. I think for youth especially um, that's important because they have a very very strong sense of what's fair and so if they understand why something isn't okay they'll respond a lot more positively than if you just tell them how to act. So that makes a big difference and then staff can also be involved if they are the victims in, in a wrongdoing. So they've been sworn at let's say or for, for small-scale ones or threatened. I know where you work and I'm waiting for you outside. They can they can say, when you swear at me, this is how it makes me feel. A lot of the time for staff, it's actually concern for the youth, saying, when you swear at me and I have to kick you out, I don't know where you are anymore. I don't know if you're doing okay. I don't know if you have somewhere to go other than here, but I need to maintain the safety for everybody here. So here's how it is. So they can be part of these more formal um still informal but planned meetings we call them so you can have a staff member who's willing it's all voluntary for everybody who's involved Um, it's an important tenant of restorative justice Um, you can have staff members sit down if they want to and and actually speak to the harm caused and what they need to make things right so everybody has a role to play in deciding um, how to make sure that child can be in the library space feeling safe and also sticking to the policies. For some of us, we've as we've expanded our training, we've been trained in community conferencing, so that would be able that would enable us to participate as facilitators in uh, larger scale wrongdoing um, where the the stakes are a bit higher. and that would involve preparing in advance, making sure we have the right people in the room and then having a, a circle or a, a community conference where we actually decide what we're going to do um, instead of a suspension to move forward. So there's a there's a wide range. We can be from from saying hello to facilitating a community conference, and we have staff trained at every level of that for um, all of our participating branches.
4: Was there any common feedback that staff had after the pilot had been implemented for a period of time?
5: Trying to recall uh, 2019 when we did these the the initial evaluation, I think generally more training is what people asked for. I think people feel like there's a lot of potential in this pilot and they want to be prepared and ready to respond in a restorative way. Um, So everybody, you know, wanting, wanting more training. And then there's some question of how much time it takes. Um, Of course, if you're doing a community conference, you are doing preparation in advance and we don't have data to prove it. Um, Anecdotally for me, it was less time than doing all the incident reports because our incidents actually dropped quite a bit once we started to do this. Um, But it does take time and energy to do something like this to get to know the people to say hello. Um, My opinion is that it's worth it.
4: And you already alluded to this a little bit. uh, But was there any general feedback or common feedback that the community then had after the pilot had been implemented for a period of time?
5: one of the uh, major challenges of this pilot has been the time the timing we got started in late 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 2018 and so our first um, real data and real experiences were in the first six months just at castle downs then we expanded to three more branches midway through 2019 and we were working on the evaluation when COVID hit and things shut down so some of our community feedback it's a little bit more limited in terms of regular community members who might notice something different happening I think for the children involved, for the youth involved, you know, they don't tell you too many details, uh, but they would participate in our community, building circles and start to actually share share something, even just showing up, saying, this is important enough to me that I'm coming here and I'm going into a room and I'm sitting down and I'm looking you in the face. Like That's a pretty strong feedback from a youth, especially uh, the youth at risk that we're often working with. So community feedback has been, has been slower. I think our, our community collaborators like the Neighborhood Empowerment Team um, and some of the other organizations in the city have provided really positive feedback for what we've been able to do and learn through the pilot. And um, I look forward as we continue to work with this pilot at five locations across EPL now to hearing more from community members.
4: Did you encounter any resistance or obstacles to implementing restorative justice or the restorative practices within a library setting, specifically a public one?
5: Mostly it's just the time it takes for people to build the skills necessary and the understanding of what it was. Um, I think a lot of it really ties into the work we're doing already. We're doing training within EPL on trauma-informed, and we're learning a lot through many different organizations, through many different training opportunities about brain development and and the amygdala and the fight or flight response. And a lot of that is related directly to why restorative justice works. Um, If somebody's already escalated and you then suspend them, you're actually probably causing more escalation because they're not thinking straight at that time. They're not in their prefrontal cortex. (laughs) And so all this training, I think, all this learning that we're doing as an organization is, is tied into restorative practice, but that can also mean that People learning about it don't see what's new about it or what's different. And there's a, there can be a perception that it takes a lot of time and everybody's working very hard. Um, so I think the challenge other than COVID-19, which is of course a giant challenge we're all still working with, is taking that time to learn about why it's important and how it works. Um, and then having the opportunity through large branches, small branches across the system to share, share stories with each other and to share best practices. So it's all just things that take time. Um, in one of my first trainings for how restorative practices could work, it was a school setting training. And so the thing that that the trainer said was you need to do restorative practice with just the staff for a year at a school before you're ready to implement it with the students. That was a big uh, learning for me to say this isn't just something you start and now you're a restorative organization. It's something that takes time and it takes um, it's a certain culture of this matters and we want to talk to each other about this kind of thing that just takes takes some time and so being patient is also a challenge. We want results quickly and we had a few at Castle Downs very very positive responses for from the youth um, where their behavior changed significantly Um, but to do it across the city is just a challenge that will take time
4: could you speak to some of those stories or best practices you already mentioned the uh, lesson in patience but I was curious if there were any other major themes within the stories and best practices and lessons that were taken away from the pilot
5: Our biggest learning that we've been able to do something about is that so much of what we do is proactive. So, that act of saying, Hi, I'm Tamara, it's nice to have you here, what's your name? Shaking a hand or offering a service in the moment lets people know that we're happy to see them. That all that proactive work is super important for being in a place where you could respond restoratively in a situation where it's warranted. I think that the proactive work, which I said, restorative practice, as much as I'd like to think it will exist for the entire city at some point, it will be our only solution. It is for some of the people, some of the time. So I think that this is also where some of the hesitance has been. And I think one of our biggest learnings and something we need to be really clear about is that if the situation is right, it can work really well. But because it's voluntary, because it takes some time and because the people have to want to come back and invest, it's, it takes a lot of um, bravery to come and sit in a circle and look at the people who you've caused harm to and to be willing to do something about it. It's a lot easier just to be suspended. Um, so for people who for whom this is important, it's wonderful, but we also need other tools in our tool belt. So thinking about restorative practice and a restorative justice approach to wrongdoing as one of the tools available to us, I think is a great great context for how we would use this in the library system for hopefully someday restorative practice is the only tool we have we need but I think there's always there's always other tools available as well to ensure staff safety and customer safety in our space.
4: Were there any other outcomes perhaps unexpected that stemmed from the implementation of the pilot within other areas of library practice or anything like that?
5: can tell you about my parenting I have uh, children who are siblings and they're two and a half years apart and when I sit them down and say what happened tell me about what happened take me back to the beginning and who was harmed and how were they harmed and what do you need to do to make things right? My kids know it's time. <laughs> and they already, they skipped to the end already. I need a hug. I need an I'm sorry picture. But taking that moment to say, okay, actually whose feelings were hurt and why were they hurt and what happened and who who did that? And and asking people to take that accountability, take, take responsibility for what happened. That's just a, a little lesson I've learned as a parent to help kids, help the kids relate to each other in a different way. I think throughout throughout EPL, I think what I was saying before about how it really integrates a lot of the training we've been getting, what we've been learning about brain development and uh, trauma-informed care, um, trauma-informed work, um, where you're working with people who either, in the case of youth, their prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet, or in the case of people who've experienced trauma, where um, there are certain pathways that light up faster, um, that there there are tools we have to respond to people in ways that help them access their prefrontal cortex and make decisions that they're going to be happy with in the future and I think if libraries are for everyone a public library space is essential for many people who live in our live in our city and I think we need ways to make the space accessible for them in a way that is safe for the community and this gives us an option this gives us one one way we can do that.
4: I guess you sort of already answered this what is been the legacy of the pilot within your own librarianship practice and what is the future within the EPL institution as a whole?
5: It's been a little bit different here at the Children's Library, especially from opening two years ago, closing, opening, closing, opening, now being open for over a year. Uh, we We haven't seen a lot of the independent youth coming into our space yet. When I see a few, I have, to, I have to dig deep and remember my Castle Downs days and all the strategies um, for making it a, a welcoming space and uh, one that's safe for everybody. I think for my own practice, it's I've been living and breathing it for so long, thinking about it in, in the way that I re, uh, respond and, and talk to staff members, in the way that we respond and talk to customers of any age, really thinking about that rapport building, relationship building first. So if there is somebody who I see and I go, oh, here we go, um, to catch myself on that and to say, hi, I'm Tamara. Welcome to the library. It's nice to have you. What's your name? And remind myself, if I don't know their name yet, I don't have the right to... <laughs> think, oh, what are they doing here? Um, And that makes such a big difference because then I'm also happy to see them because I just said I was and I know who they are and I care. So that's that's one small way that it affects my day-to-day work here. Um, For EPL, we are continuing the pilot. We had to kind of relaunch after COVID. Um, So we've created some training available to all staff members. And we have five branches who are actively involved in the pilot. And we're just continuing to provide some resources. The involved branches have their working groups. We're sticking with youth for now. But we're also starting to think about what could this look like? what, What aspects of this are important and possible for working with adults in our spaces?
4: Moving to a classic final question, what kinds of hopes for the future of restorative justice practice within libraries do you have, if you were to think beyond practicality?
5: I think I even alluded to this earlier, restorative practice for all, all ages, all libraries across across the city. And I think not just for libraries, but for justice systems overall, um, I'm convinced that this is worth the time and energy and that humans are worth this time and energy uh, whether victim or, or wrongdoer. Um, within libraries, more practically, I think the the resources that we've learned, the skills that, that I've been able to build over the past four years, learning about restorative practice and trying it out, I think are, are worth the time. It's, it's worth the time, and I would love to see it implemented across all libraries. I think especially for youth, it just makes sense, um, talking about the way their brains are developing um, the general sense of, of a need for justice and fairness. Um, when we did the initial survey with youth as we were starting this pilot, we asked what should happen when you do something wrong and almost every response was we should make it right in some way, fa- way, shape or form, whether it's volunteering or apologizing or not doing it again, that is just what makes sense. And so um, working with youth in the way that their brains work, I think makes sense. And this is a tool that that really does work for kids, for youth.
4: Thank you so much for talking to us today. We've been interviewing Tamara Van Beert, the manager of the EPL Shelley Milner Children's Library and EPL To Go. For more resources on restorative justice practice within libraries, check out our show notes.
0: That was part one of two of Dan Hackborn's interview with Tamara Van Beert. Join us next month for the second part of that interview. We'll close out today with a sneak peek at next month's episode. Thanks again for joining us here on Shout for Libraries. Something
6: that we noticed on SAVE is that sexual violence was kind of getting used as like a straw man for reasons why policing still needed to exist. So there was kind of this argument that like who will catch the rapists, basically, um, if we don't have police, Um, which, you know, everyone who is involved with SAVE is a professional in sexual violence, a survivor, an advocate, Um, and we know that that's really problematic. We know that police are really bad at responding to sexual violence and actually traumatize survivors more often than they help them, that they very rarely get um, quote-unquote justice outcomes, as we might understand them in the criminal justice system in terms of convictions, Um, and that it was really kind of like a false equivalency to suggest that like policing was the solution to sexual violence. Um, and so we decided to start a Defund the Police campaign kind of in solidarity with groups like Black Lives Matter um, with kind of a specific focus on that policing is not the solution for sexual violence either, and that it's not preventing it. It is in fact probably making the experience worse for many survivors. Um, and in the process of our community consultations, with folks in the city about you know, what should this look like per se, what, what components are important to us. Um, something that was brought up was the idea that we have no records really of what police violence looks like in our community, and that includes police violence um, when they're perpetrating sexual violence, when they are mishandling reports of sexual violence um, in ways that are harmful sur- for survivors, but also more broadly we have very little information on the kinds of harms that policing does to our community. Um, And we kind of identified that as, as something that maybe we could do um, to provide kind of not ammunition, but to to provide information and put something in the hands of people who've already been doing the abolition work in terms of just identifying kind of what are these harms? Because if we think about community safety and like a world free of policing, um, You know, these things are all integrated and and things like white supremacy and racialized violence are very tightly interwoven with how sexual violence happens in our community. Um, So that kind of led to the idea of the archive. um, And we have kind of been plugging away ever since to try and make it a reality.